Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editors Sue Sutter and Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 28th, 2023. The federal government is on the verge of shutting down, putting the FDA in an undesirable position. But before we get to that, I want to discuss the news from yesterday, which was which is the advisory committee meeting on the proposed ALS drug Neuron. Sue, you covered the meeting for us. It doesn't look like it went well for the sponsor. Uh, no, it did not. Um, this has been a, a difficult product for a long time. It's a cell therapy for ALS, and um, FDA had refused to file the BLA, calling it um, grossly deficient in terms of the CMC information that was missing or, or incorrect and uh, lacking substantial evidence of efficacy because the one phase three clinical trial failed on all its primary and secondary endpoints. So the company has spent years um, kind of going through post hoc and exploratory analysis and you know, asserts that the trial failed because of this, uh, what it calls a floor effect in the, um, in the scale that was used to measure the primary endpoint meaning that people who were at zero on the scale to begin with at baseline, they couldn't go down anymore. So it looked like they had achieved some sort of response. And they, you know, the company is asserting that this, this uh, appearance of response in the placebo group is what made the trial look like a fail. And they also assert that the trial was successful in a certain subgroup of people who had better function at baseline. So FDA agreed to file the application over protest, and they took it to an advisory committee. And um, the advisory committee was pretty brutal. Um, not only did they say that there just wasn't clinical efficacy, uh, substantial evidence of clinical efficacy, they you know, reference the failure of the phase three trial. Um, they were pretty critical of all the post hoc and exploratory analysis. One panelist called it statistical magic. Um, they also had issues with the, the company's failure to really elucidate a clear mechani mechanism of action. And that's important for a number of reasons, including the fact that um, in terms of identifying critical quality attributes that have to be controlled during manufacturing and for release. And neither FDA nor the advisory committee felt that that has really been adequately done by the company. They also didn't think there'd been enough preclinical data for this drug. So it was really a whole litany of issues. And um, in the end, the committee voted 17 to one with one abstention that there was not substantial evidence of effectiveness. And this came despite some very emotional patient and caregiver testimony during the open public hearing. Um, people who participated in the neuron trials or have um, gotten the cell therapy through expanded access and attested to how it has helped them either improve their function or maintain um, what function they had over the years. Sue, we've definitely seen um, appeals to uh, unmet uh, uh, clinical need and uh, compelling patient testimonials uh, appear to c carry the day at uh, advisory committees uh, over the years, especially in uh, rare diseases. Why do you think that uh, that didn't work this time? 
I think there were just too many things wrong with this application. All the clinical data going in the wrong way in terms of the intent to treat population. The biomarker data either, either showed slow, small increases or just did not, did not track with the, any clinical improvements. The, the manufacturing issues are huge. It's a cell therapy, so it's tricky to begin with. And then when you've got FDA calling the manufacturing quality information grossly deficient, you know, I just think that there were too many things wrong with this application. FDA has taken issue with this company in the past for being rather bullish on the results of this clinical trial that that failed its primary and secondary endpoints back in March 2021. The uh, Center for Biologics posted a statement on its website saying, we do not find evidence that this product works. So that's a highly unusual statement for Seabird to post for an investigational product. So I think there's some long-standing issues here, and I think it was just um, too much to be overcome by patient testimony and unmet need. So I think maybe we've seen sort of the outer limits of FDA's regulatory flexibility for neurodegenerative diseases, but I guess we will see. I mean, there's always the possibility that they could... Um, take a different action, but the user feed date is December 8th. I mean, they couldn't even convince the patient rep on the committee that, you know, to to vote in favor of approval. I mean, that, that's that got to be at least telling, in, in, at least in some respects, right? Yeah, I mean, that happens sometimes, but not frequently. <laughs> so I mean, going forward, is there is there any kind of indication yet on in terms of what uh, brainstorm is going to do. I mean, are they going to are they going to try and do some more trials? Are they going to just walk away from this this product or any? Have they said? Well, they <clears throat> the committee gave recommendations on what they would want to see in another trial. Brainstorm had outlined a phase four trial that it was going to begin said was going to begin in 2024. This was assuming you know approval. They issued a press release either late last night, or early this morning, saying that they were going to be evaluating all options going forward. So I don't think it's quite clear yet. But uh, surprisingly, one thing that did not come up at the meeting yesterday, there was really almost no discussion of this phase four trial um, beyond a, a slide that Brainstorm presented. But you know, the thing that struck me is how you would enroll a study like this if the product were on the market commercially. Um, a placebo book controlled trial, they said it would be an international study, but I don't see how you would be able to enroll the placebo arm in the US. And certainly the FDA and, and sponsors have come across this problem in the past. So. I was gonna say, we've heard this a lot of times, <laughs> including in the rare disease setting, you know, recently <laughs> with, right. with the Duchenne drug Right. That just that right. just got a got accelerated approval. But that was different in that 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 study was already fully enrolled by the time yes. it got accelerated approval and is due to wrap up this month, I believe. And the accelerated approval was in June. This has not even going to begin until 2024 at the earliest. So, you know, the committee didn't even get to that. I think that shows you sort of how bad the whole BLA situation was if the committee <laughs> didn't even get to that point, you know. Yeah, it shows, you know, how um, 
how important not only you know man, not only manufacturing you know at the small scale is but you know there's all we've also seen a lot of issues with moving from trial scale to production actual commercial production scale and how important that is especially in the you know cell and gene therapy area so you know again another kind of takeaway from this is that you can't skimp on the manufacturing part of this exactly derek and i think that cmc part is something that the patient community maybe doesn't fully grasp the importance of that that's always been highly important to fda and you know applications die (laughs) live or die on that CMC data, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're an ALS patient, you know, that's you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about yeah, you're I want something efficacy. that's going to help <laughs> me live or help me keep my function. You know, you're not thinking about the actual quality of the product that you might be getting. Yeah. And at the same time, if, you know, if if you do, if they're not worried about that, then that that it that directly impacts efficacy safety you know everything else so yep sure it does mm-hmm. and fda is not going to yeah. give a lot of leeway there yes they often will allow some testing post approval especially if it's a product for a rare disease that they're you know eager to to try to get out there to meet an unmet need but when there are just so many issues i don't think i've ever read a briefing document where they called the CMC information grossly deficient. So that's rather striking. Interesting. Well, thanks, Sue. Next, we're going to take a look at the, as of right now, increasing threat of a federal government shutdown and its impact on the FDA. It's a little after noon, and as of now, there's no indication that a temporary funding extension is going to pass in the next two days which means large swaths of government employees will be furloughed on October 1st, which is a Sunday, could be the next day, but the the fiscal year ends on October, on September 30th. The the FDA will be among those furloughing staff, but uh, about 81% of them will continue working, at least for the time being, thanks to user fee funding reserves, which will allow application reviews and other services to continue. Certain public health duties like manufacturing facility inspections also will be uninterrupted. But the FDA can't run on the user fee carryover balances forever. The prescription drug user fee was estimated to have about a 12-week reserve, while the generic drug user fee program was estimated to have about 11 weeks of reserve. And the biosimilar user fee program was estimated to have a whopping 47 weeks of reserve, which prompted a fee cut beginning on October 1st, ironically. So... Service cuts may not manifest right away, but concerns are out there about what happens if a shutdown lasts a long time. Sarah, you've been covering the effort by Congress to get the bill passed. Um, It looks like the Senate's trying to do a temporary extension, but the House wanted to try and pass a full FDA funding bill. I I guess that didn't really fly, though, did it? Well, um, we'll see. There's... um there's potential that the House may vote on the full FDA agricultural funding bill tonight. I think there's also still sense out there that um, House Republicans don't have enough votes to get it passed. Um, You know, even if this FDA agricultural bill pending there passes the House, um, it's not a, it's not in a format that would pass the Senate. So, um, and, you know, there's really no chance they get all, you know, the House, 
we're either definitely going to have a shutdown or a CR pretty much at this point. Um, you know, so while work on this FDA ag approval bill may come circle back around eventually, um, you know, the question really is, is there any chance at, you know, getting a CR deal um, between the two chambers of Congress before a shutdown and might have to happen? And it, it's, it's hard to really say at this point, but I think most people um, are preparing for the very real possibility of a shutdown because there's just so much um, challenges in the House because the Republican majority is really not united on what they would be willing to accept in a CR. So um, if the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has his work cut out for him. Well, and we saw as they as as they worked on the FDA bill, there were a bunch of amendments that were you know, FDA focus that really kind of were targeting certain people with lowering their salaries to a dollar? Yeah, there were some um, interesting amendments in um, the FDA Act Bill, to say the least, that, um, you know, um, Representative um, Bob Good of Virginia proposed essentially, um, right, cutting the salaries of a lot of top um, FDA career staff. When I asked his office about them for the reason for this, um, they said it was sort of an opposition to FDA's recent actions um, that have, you know, made the abortion pill mifepristone easier to access. It's just sort of an unusual tactic people said it's not completely unheard of but um you know it's kind of rare for politicians to go after career staff in this way rather than you know sort of expressing the same sentiment around the policy through a more direct sort of reference or taking away fund you know funding more directly related to policy the interesting thing i guess is these amendments failed and they got a significant amount of, you know, Republican to vote no to it. And I think um, maybe perhaps that says something about, you know, that FDA, you know, about, you know, where sentiment is on FDA. I'm not sure. Also, like in general, the FDA ag bill, the reason why they might not get a vote in the House seems to be because um, there's actually enough moderate Republicans that are concerned in general about the bill's plans to roll back some of the um, changes FDA has made that make Mifepristone easier to kind of distribute and get access to. So um, <laughs> there's a lot of dynamics around the abortion pill um, that are impacting this bill. And, you know, it's not just all a straight a forward, you know, Republicans are on one side Democrats are on another. Again, there's like this range of viewpoints in the Republican Party that's creating a lot of difficulties for the House to conduct its business right now. And I know, you know, late, you know, the 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 amendments uh, failed, but, you know, and and people will say, you know, you're a public employee, you know, I mean, we're used to people's names getting called out in the press and on TV and so forth. And you have to kind of have a thick skin if you're going to be in a leadership position. But I mean, this was, I think you called it unusual in your story, you know, that they go after people by name. I think even the bill, like they named the actual people in the, it wasn't like defunding the position. It was defunding the position in this person specifically you know, I mean, you just wonder if like even, you know, that that puts something in the back of people's minds that, 
do I really do I need to do this job? And, you know, if, if another opportunity comes up outside of government service, you know, should I consider it? You know, that that sort of uh, thing. Yeah, I think one of the people that I talked to for this story, Deb Outer, who's the um, who helps lead the FDA Alumni Association, um, worked for the FDA for a long time, worked in industry. You know, she said, you know, this certainly doesn't help. You know, there's all there's already, you know, a lot of challenges, you know, and we've certainly talked about this a lot in the podcast, you know, that people in these positions face in terms of, um, you know, having to kind of withstand and deal with public criticism and pressure from all sides. And FDA has a lot of hiring retention problems overall. So this doesn't help. I think, um, you know, it's just another added thing. I'm not sure whether it will really deter anybody from doing what they're doing in these positions. Um, but, um, you know, some folks said it's just it's part of sort of a trend to watch again, thinking just in terms of how politicians are, you know, it, again, it's not unusual for in these appropriations bills for members of Congress to sort of make their feelings known about how agencies have handled different policy decisions. What seems to be unusual here and what people are worried may be more of a trend is the personal nature of the attacks. Um, so I guess that'll be something kind of to watch going forward, whether this continues. Especially when you know, we had to ask the, you know, the member why they did it. You know, it wasn't obvious from the amendment what the problem was. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's just an interesting thing about, you know, wh why they picked this, the people, the, you know, positions and people they picked. And, um, you know, you're right. The way that, that he worded the amendment, it was, it was position specific, but, it, you know, there was no need, as far as I could tell, to call out who is currently holding those positions. <laughs> so it seems like there was a deliberate thought process in my mind as to say in each of those specific amendments to say, you know, Centers for Drug Evaluation and Research Director position currently held by Patricia Cavazzoni. So it wasn't limiting it to just like when she's in the position, but at the same time, you know, they clearly wanted to like put the names <laughs> in the text. So yeah, we've we can't say that you know the shutdown hasn't started yet, but we're getting close. So um, maybe you know within the next couple of days, things will probably become a lot clearer. I know the uh, the last one the uh, FDA has started to kind of uh, uh, dial back on its services as it sort of ran low on uh, uh, user fee money as the uh, the shutdown continued. Uh, is there any uh, sense for how long this one might run and? Uh, uh, what uh, what the uh, the tail uh, the tail will look like as uh, uh, FDA has to uh, has to conserve cash uh, as the weeks go on. I haven't gotten a sense of how long it'll go. I mean, it you know, I mean, it's going to depend on how quickly they can you know. People are going to have to move off of their negotiating positions a little bit, and you know, I mean, it's a you know, how bad do they want to reach an agreement? essentially i mean you know are we going to go through are they going to reach an agreement are they going to try and get rid of the speaker of the house and and appoint and appoint somebody else i mean is are all these you know there's all these things kind of happening you know and you know i mean so it could and i even i saw a quote the other day you know that where one of the members didn't think a two-week shutdown was all that bad well maybe it isn't maybe it is i don't you know 
if you're if you're one of these um you know the workers that uh you know can barely make ends meet and doesn't uh you know isn't going to get back pay when this is over you don't want to you don't want any any kind of shutdown but i don't know it could be a few days it could be a couple of weeks i mean i think what was it the 2017 2018 one lasted a month a little more than a month i mean that was when um that that was the year that they actually were in danger of running out of reserves um towards the end of it so we'll we'll see what happens yeah i mean the most recent uh shutdowns have been kind of like over the weekend sort of things that didn't end up having much of an impact at all i i think this like the past year or so this um wild card we've had is there just these you know sort of far right house republican congress members that don't really seem to have a lot of they're they're very good at sticking to their guns to get to what they want and they don't seem concerned about you know things you maybe typically expect politicians to be as concerned about the shutdown so they they like to sort of dig into their heels and hope that they can kind of really use their even though they're sort of like a minority as a group they have enough power um if they're stubborn to kind of keep things from happening. Derek, with yeah. regard to FDA specifically, I'd be curious as to whether there's a um, bolus of new NDA, BLA, and ANDA submissions this week um, to try to get in under the shutdown deadline. Because as you pointed out in your story, they can continue uh, reviews for user fee funded applications, but they cannot accept new applications with user fee money after a shutdown begins yes that is i would and i was i was thinking about that the other day that the at least with um the generics data they're about a month behind so we won't we'll see we won't see for a little for a few weeks yet but uh yeah i think i think you may see that especially on the generic side if applications are ready to go they'll or about to finish they'll push to get them in and even get even the supplements and so forth to try and you know and and pay to get them in and get paid so they can at least get the have the review going as you know before it before it starts and the the fees increase uh, with the uh the new fiscal year uh as well so there's uh an extra incentive to sort of get those uh ndas in because it'll be uh it'll be cheaper and you can start a review at the at the same time yeah, that's the other the other incentive is we were probably going to see we we're probably going to see a bolus at the end of the fiscal year anyway because of that. So finally, we're going to revisit the Medicare price negotiation list. Kathy, you looked at a study judging the best chances of savings for the Medicare program. Yes, um, it was an analysis done by SSR Health, a well-known um, pricing and analytics firm. And they came to the conclusion that just three of the 10 drugs on the list uh, for negotiation in the first round, you know, show a sort of a chance for relatively significant savings. Those were Imbruvica, Enbrel, and Stellara. And the reason they felt that those might uh, yield better savings is that they're not currently rebated to an ex- to a, you know, extensive uh, amount. In fact, Imbruvica they felt was hardly rebated at all. And so the Medicare can negotiate below uh, the current net price, and a net price is the price when you factor in rebates. 
um, but it, it would not uh, land on a price that's above the current net price. So if these, if seven of the drugs are already heavily rebated and have relatively, you know, low net prices, the the SSR, you know, came to the conclusion that they probably would not um, produce much savings. And those other seven are um, uh, Farziga, Jardians, Xarelto, Novolog, Eliquis, and Tresto, and Genuvia. And Jardians. I don't know if I said Jardians, but um, you know, all those are in very competitive categories, and they are known to be highly rebated. So you do see that. Um, well, and I, I guess I should also say at this point that CMS can go below the net price if they feel it's warranted, and they they have said that they will. It's just not clear how much lower they would go and what it would take for them to decide that a price needs to go below the current net price, but they still could do that. Um, but what struck me about this study is sort of the messaging dilemma <laughs> that it poses to CMS and the administration, um, which you know will want to show savings from this negotiation program. And in fact, there may not be um, significant savings um, beyond what is already being achieved, which kind of plays into industry's argument that why do we need Medicare price negotiation when we already have it in Part D, um, which you know they do in the sense that PBMs negotiate rebates, which then go back to the plans. So it will be interesting to see how CMS handles this. Um, I think the situation will be different as time goes on, particularly when the Medicare Part B's and boy drugs are, you know, factored into the mix starting in 2028. Part B drugs will also be negotiated. You know, since those are not rebated to any large extent at this point, there's a much better chance that they will show significant savings through the process of negotiation. But at this point, you know, there's for the next couple of years, it could be tricky for CMS. Okay, so I know there's a good answer for this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If seven of 10 can't produce much savings, why are we doing this? <laughs> I just, well, get, I just, yeah. I first read, I read your, I was looking, read your story and I'm like, why? I, that was just the first, like, why are we doing this? You know, we're going through all this stuff, we're going through all the legal stuff. Everybody's complaining about how this is, you know, about this process that was created. And then at the end of the mm -hmm. day, we're going to see three out of 10 that produce, you know, real savings potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess the the expectation is that, that that won't continue to be the case going forward. And as I said, particularly when the Part B drugs you know, are subject to negotiation, negotiated prices starting in 28. We will see greater savings. The The problem that CMS um, has run into, if you call it a problem, is that they choose drugs for negotiation based on gross uh, spending. And gross spending does not take rebates into account. So basically, they start with a list of the 50 drugs with the highest level of spendings, and they work down. And it you know, it just so happens that drugs with, with the highest levels of gross spending are often those that have high list prices because manufacturers leave that 
margin or that headroom for big rebates. <laughs> so, you know, it's possible that this will change as CMS works further down the list and maybe won't, you know, won't be focusing on drugs or targeting drugs that have such high rebates. I think that, you know, and as I said, it's certainly possible it will happen when the Part B drugs come on. The other thing to remember is that um, beneficiary cost sharing is based on list prices, not net prices. And so it will save beneficiaries money because their coinsurance, for example, will be based on the negotiated price as opposed to the list price going forward. Oh, I was going to say the other thing I thought that was interesting is like um, one of the people you talked to for your story, Kathy, suggested also just because like plans are going to have to cover these negotiated drugs, like whether it sort of changes their leverage on sort of what the discounts they get for other drugs in the same kind of class or for the same indication. So like there's right. like interesting trickle down mm -hmm. effects to watch. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. I think like the headlines are going to be complicated for CMS, even yeah. if they're savings, it's like much harder to make the case if that, that if they can't, you know, do better than the private kind of sector. PBMs are right. doing. And that's not to say, too, that PBMs can't try to demand rebates on the negotiated drugs. <laughs> so CMS could, you know, could set a price that is even below the current net price. And I think PBMs could come back. I, I'm not sure what how much leverage they would have at that point, because as you said, the negotiated drugs have to be covered on formularies. Now, PBMs will have a little um, leeway in the sense that they can impose some utilization management tools like step therapy or, you know, those sorts of things, prior authorization. And maybe, you know, they could they could use that as some leverage to try to extract further rebates. It's really unclear how that's going to play out. But but you know what um what you're referring to, um, Sarah, is, is the way PBMs will address competitors of those negotiated um, drugs and how they may try to secure bigger rebates from them. Um, you know, the other thing I've been hearing is that um, from, from defenders of the negotiation program is that the savings that will be generated from the program is being used to fund the richer benefits in Part D and most particularly that $2,000 annual cap on, on out-of-pocket spending that goes into effect in 25. And so can't really say, oh, well, Medicare is going to fill its coffers with this savings because it's already being spent on the, the richer benefits that that will be in Part um, D, which, are, you know, are very popular. But it just made me wonder about that argument, which I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about, because when you think of all these lawsuits that are challenging the, the negotiation program, they seem to be carving out that program from, you know, the the spending on the two thousand dollar cap that that supposedly it's it's funding. You know, you can see how that tension might play out as we go forward. In a uh, completely random uh, coincidence, the prices will be announced right before the uh, twenty twenty four uh, election. So I uh, I <laughs> yeah. imagine that the uh, vast savings will be declared. Uh, Regardless yes. of what sort of kind of the the actual you know sort of kind of egghead right. uh, um, arguments about uh, you know gross versus net uh, may end up uh, may end yes. up being so it's uh, yeah uh, definitely uh, I uh, await await those headlines um, that's right.
Interesting. Well, uh, we we look forward to to hearing that and and more more interesting studies of the of the price of the price negotiation as the negotiations go along here. So thank thanks, Kevin. Well. well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 